Praise Satan, John! We're back! Holy freaking crap! Those dark, dark days between beautiful, glorious seasons are at long last behind us. I'm so happy. How you doing, good buddy? I, I mean, as you know, I am preparing to move, so my whole life is in shambles. Yes, yes, your life, well, I mean, your life is always in shambles, so that's not like... But but it's less, it's a, it's less clean than okay. normally. Shambles, though it may be emotionally, <laughs> it's very clean. I mean, I'm surrounded by, like, boxes shit, and scores. Yeah. I can't really, like, my elbow room is yeah, limited. bad. But, that having been said, this is a good shambles. This is a positive, life-affirming shambles. Yeah. Would you like to share sure. uh, your, your news? John has news. No, I, I got a job in Missouri. Missouri. At, at the University of Missouri as their new director of orchestral activities. I just want you to know, John, I'm proud of you. Thank you. I'm very, very proud. So, you know, obviously as a deeply selfish person, however, all I really care about is how this affects me. Yes. John, I think you said very clearly, I believe you signed a contract saying you'd never, ever leave me. And <laughs> frankly, if you had a bunny... I would probably be uh, in the process of boiling it. I guess that would be. Oh, you do! I, I wasn't sure if you would get that reference. I understand reference. that reference. Good, good. So you, you know the depths of my rage. I do. Okay. But you're not really leaving us in spirit, correct? Of course not. Yes. I could never leave the Heavy Metal 101 podcast. It just means that uh, I'm going to suddenly sound way nicer than you on every episode <laughs> until you get a better microphone. No, <laughs> I'm going to sound all tinny and distant. Well, Mr. Show Me State over here <laughs> sounds like he's like speaking into your ear. The, the basic gist here is that while John will geographically be relocating, his heart, his voice, and his gorgeous, stupid brain will remain with us here at Heavy Metal 101. You see, folks, instead of two dudes chatting at uncomfortable length in an intimate, darkened room... Do you want the lights I could turn the lights on. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be Heavy Metal 101 with the lighting. I like it dim and cluttered. I just never think about it. <laughs> well, now, I'll get to control my own lighting, because we will now be two dudes screaming across the void that is the endless expanse of the internet. And blessed be, this show will indeed go on. John, I really am super duper happy for you. You totally deserve it, and it's freaking awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's time to stop all this, oh, it's been summer break, and blah, 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 dicking around. Because this is a serious new season, John. And starting here and now, we have some very serious business to attend to. Okay, so John, what can you tell me about the year of our Lord, 1986? Nothing of import. Nothing? Not a thing? No. Okay. You know, it's funny. As I want to do, I did some research. I did a search for all the important events which had occurred in 1986. Not a single, not one general resource that I found discussed any of the monumentally important heavy metal musical stuff we'll be digging into today. Not one mention, which is very sad, but I do think it helps to illustrate what an indispensable historical resource we are here at HM 101, no? Let's couch it in that framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are doing... Dare I say God's work? I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> Alright, but even though I didn't learn anything about heavy metals, I did learn that the Oprah Winfrey Show's national debut was in 1986. Oh, that's it, fun. Yeah, that's a thing. We love Oprah. Yeah, Oprah's good. I mean, mixed bag, but she, she's, she's a very important human being. Of course, there was also a little thing uh, called a meltdown at Chernobyl. Really? Was Chernobyl was 86? 86, as well as the Challenger disaster. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So it was... Very significant and terribly unfortunate events. Yeah. So these are things that you're, you're big, familiar with. Big tragedies I am aware of, but again, was not alive for. Yeah, see, I was alive for those things. I was 10, or probably 9 at the time. However, it may surprise you to note that we are not, in fact, here to discuss international disasters. Really? No! Are you sure? You're going to make a joke, and I'm not going to like it. <laughs> Stay away from the joke, John. <laughs> I don't do jokes. Remember, this is a serious yes, episode. This is a serious episode. Yes. I'm not funny. Thank you. We are here to discuss heavy fucking metal. Oh, is that what we do? That's our thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do here. Uh, now, I'm going to take a wild guess, and I'm going to assume that you don't have any clue why 1986 was a monumentally important year in heavy metal. Eric, even having listened to the playlist of music that you sent me that I assume all comes from the year 1986? More or less. I can't answer that question. I didn't think that you would put two and two together because you cannot math. That is accurate. There are many people who consider 1986 to be metal's single greatest year. Hmm. And it is most definitely in that discussion. 
I'm going to give you three specific reasons why 1986 is so damned important to the history of heavy metal, and we're going to see if you can figure out how these three things are related. Okay, what is the common link between the following three items? Number one, Master of Puppets. Number two, Peace Sells, but who's buying? And number three, Rain in Blood. Is it 1986? Three people who've never been in your kitchen? Is that is that what we're going with here? <laughs> Those aren't people. Those are songs. They're not fucking songs. Actually, they're all songs. Yeah. Um, all well, all right. Didn't you make me listen to all of those songs? Rain also... in Blood is not a song. Raining Blood is a song. Okay, but, well, but reading is hard. But yes. But, so but, are those the album titles? Yes. See, good. So you get the basic idea. They are three albums from 1986. More specifically, you might have noted that they are three thrash metal albums, but uh, that would have been too much to I, ask. I would not have noted okay, that. Okay, okay. I just want to say it warms my heart that we're back here chatting about metal and reveling in the profound depths of your ignorance. Yet again, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You missed this? <laughs> it's, it's, you missed the tension this brings to your heart <laughs> with every passing remark that I make. <laughs> I do, I do. I need okay. that. I need that push and pull in my life. <laughs> Keeps me healthy. So, in 1986, to be clear, three of the big four American thrash metal bands released their seminal masterpieces. Those were, of course, Master of Puppets, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying, and Rain and Blood. Those are, as you noted, the titles of the three albums, which respectively broke Metallica, Megadeth, and Slayer. As well as thrash metal writ large. The final member of the Big Four, Anthrax, actually apparently missed some sort of memo, and they actually waited until 1987 to release their masterpiece, Among the Living. But we're going to let it slide because Anthrax is adorable, funny, and also they were rather busy inadvertently inventing rap metal at the very same time. So I think they had a lot on their plate, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't know these were thrash metal albums. Do you know anything about thrash metal? Mm, I'm just going to take the safe answer of no. <laughs> it's, always, it's always a safe answer yeah. for you. Okay. Well, you know, honestly, we could devote an entire episode to the early development of thrash metal. Right, if we I'd really want to. Frankly, stunned that we are not. Well, we're going we're gonna to compress it. We, we're kind of going to do that you, right now. You lack that capacity, so I cannot wait to see <laughs> what is about to happen. You're saying compression is not my, my forte? Compression is not your forte. I'm more of an expansion. That is putting it mildly. Yeah. Yes, okay. This is a season premiere episode, and for a season premiere episode, I believe that we need to do something special. I think that what we really need to do is a montage. Ooh. I know, right? The audio montage. An audio montage. I mean, what better way to learn about the early history and development of one of heavy metal's most significant subgenres than via a brief, pithy audio montage? Can't wait. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that we really can learn a great deal about the formative development of thrash metal via just five disparate scenes, brief little vignettes, all taking place over the course of but a single year. One year. One year. One year. That year was 1981, the year that little bouncing baby thrash metal was born. So how does this all sound, mi amigo profundo? Let's go. All right. Roll montage. Welcome to Truly Radical 1981, the year in which the world was first introduced to Indiana Jones. The very first space shuttle was launched, and for the first time in human history, you could purchase a DeLorean. Come along with us, beloved HM101 audience, and bear witness to the birth of Thrift. Scene 1. In April of 1981, grimy old Thatcherite England, the hardcore punks of the band Discharge released their fourth EP entitled simply, Why? It featured ten lightning-fast politically charged screens, all in just under 15 minutes of total runtime. Not only did this grungy, visceral album shoot all the way to number one on the UK EP chart, but according to punknews.org, it, quote, revolutionized everything, paving the way for the atonal shredding of hardcore punk, thrash, death metal, and grind. Scene 2! 
Downey, California is perhaps an inauspicious place from which to expect great things. And yet, in 1981, a young lad named James and his assortment of compadres, a gaggle of guys known collectively as the band Leather Charm, composed a wee little ditty that would spark the flame which would eventually burst into blazing thrash metal glory. This same song, Hit the Lights, would be revamped when James left Leather Charm and met a Danish fellow named Lars. It would go on to become the last song on the 1982 Metal Massacre compilation, the first song on the 1982 demo tape entitled No Life to Leather, and of course, in its final form, the opening track of Metallica's world-changing 1983 debut album, Kill Em All. Scene three! Meanwhile, across the country over the East Coast, yay, East Coast! At approximately that very same time, a band was coming together in the seedy mire of everybody's third favorite borough of New York City, Queens. There, a guitarist named Scott Ian and a guitarist named Dan Lilker started a new band under a moniker they had discovered in the most metal place of all. In biology textbook. Anthrax is what's for dinner. Scene four! We zoom back westward once more, but this time also very, very, very far to the south, within the fearsome, fiery ninth circle of hell, otherwise known as Huntington Park, California. <coughs> Two demonic monster men come guitarists met at an audition and decided to form their own ensemble, embracing a pitch black darkness and constructing an entity that would grow vastly more terrible and wondrous than anyone could have possibly imagined. These guitarists, Gary King and Jeff Hanneman, next drafted drummer Dave Lombardo and singer-slash-bassist Tom Araya into their ferocious fold, and Slayer was born. Slayer! And Satan looked upon them, and he was pleased. While thrash was to evolve from something of a marriage of elements found across both the Nawabum and hardcore punk, no single album did more to establish the template upon which future thrash metal would be based than Welcome to Hell, the seminal debut by the most terrifying Nawaba band of all, Venom. Forged in the unholy fires of Newcastle upon Tyne, England, and released in December of 1981, Welcome to Hell put an entire world on notice that darkly terrifying things were on the horizon. I don't know about you, John. I found all of that both spiritually enlightening and intellectually transcendent. So now we've got something of a sense of the formative influences and some of the early players on the thrash scene. But to call back an HM 101 season number one classic episode, what the hell is thrash metal? Uh, John, I'm asking you because I actually don't know. You don't know? I have no idea. Oh no! No, God, I didn't. I mean, I researched. I researched 1986 disasters, ah. but I forgot to actually research what thrash metal uh, tracks. <laughs> well, look, I mean, at this point, you do have some amount of background in classic thrash. You listened to two, yes, two entire Metallica albums last season for the podcast. And then, OMG, you listened to yet a third Metallica album all on your own. That's, that is correct. Wow. You've also listened to a selections from each of the big four in preparation for this episode, so you are practically a freaking expert. So can you recall any common threads across all of that music which might help us to illuminate our lovely audience? Uh, I mean, it's, well, it's hard to put into words. Like, how do you yeah. describe music how in do you words? See, like dancing about physics. Yeah, God, I hate you so much. <laughs> so... Compared to some of the earlier metal that we have listened to, mm -hmm. the sound, it's crunchier, okay. and it's faster. Okay, Fa fast, I agree, it's fast. Crunchy, I mean, it's more, it's like more angry, more distorted. Well, you know, Eric, I think the important thing to remember about thrash is that it tends to be particularly fast and aggressive. I hate you so fucking <laughs> God damn it. You give the guy time and he looks at my fucking script. <laughs> you're such a shit. <laughs> well, you're right, John. It is typically a particularly fast and aggressive subgenre. 
<laughs> I, I would also note the lyrical content in Thrash uh, coming out of punk. It's often very angry. It's got a real serious anti-authoritarian streak. Some of the really specific musical features that are typically associated with Thrash include Pummeling, chugging guitar riffs, which are often made particularly precise via the use of palm muting, right-hand palm muting. There's shredding, high-velocity lead guitar playing, so we got the, the super-fast high, we got the low, precise chugging riffs, and driving drums, which often feature virtuosic use of the double bass pedal. And there's actually an apt quote. I have a quote. A I, quote? I, I do research. I oh. research things. Um, it is from Gary Holt of the band Exodus, and he referred to Thrash as, quote, the punk attitude and tempos with the technical ability and melody of these great metal bands. I think that sums things up pretty nicely. Sure. So it's like heavy, heavy metal meets punk. Great. Yeah. So now, as we've established, the formative music that would become thrash metal began up percolating as far back as 1981. However, in its earliest days, this music was generally known as speed metal, or occasionally as power metal. Uh, it was the journalist Malcolm Dome who first coined the term thrash while writing about an anthrax song titled Metal Thrashing Mad. This was in 1984. Incidentally, this just happened to be the very same dude who had written a tome about heavy metal he had called Encyclopedia Metallica just a few years earlier, which detailed the early history of heavy metal and eventually ended up lending this word, Metallica, to a couple of goofballs who were working on putting together a band in Los Angeles at around that same time. Now, for the record, it was also a journalist, different journalist, Don Kay, who first wrote about the more specific subject of today's episode, that is the, quote, Big Four of Thrash. This was in an issue of Kerrang! magazine in the late 1980s. Now, John. Eric. You're a smart guy, no? I mean, I want to say yes, <laughs> but honestly, the longer I live with myself, I'm, I, you know, I'm not an idiot. Smartish. Sure. I, mean, I think that's fair. Uh, anyhow. I'm hoping that through a combination of your lived experience mm -hmm. and many fucking context clues mm -hmm. over the course of this episode, mm -hmm. you Which can answer. I've definitely been listening to. Yes, very clearly. I've mm -hmm. seen. I've seen your eyes not like go all wonky and mm -hmm. blank mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. start nodding off or anything. Um, okay, you tell me. Who are the big four of thrash metal? All right, so we got uh, Metallica. Mm -hmm. We got uh, Anthrax. Mm -hmm. We got Slayer. Mm -hmm. And the other one you made me listen to was Megadeth? Yes! Let's go! Praise Indeed, Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth are known collectively as the Big Four, thanks to this one journalist. Now, everybody insists that that's a thing. It's weird. Now, <laughs> these guys, important as they are, are not the only significant players on the thrash metal scene. And in fact, it could be argued that Exodus who were founded all the way back in 1979 by future Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett, were really the earliest thrash band. It's just that they had the misfortune of not actually getting to release their debut album until all the way in 1985. Hmm. Other American bands that are just outside of this proverbial big four, but definitely worthy of mention, include Overkill, who formed in the beautiful state of New Jersey in 1980, and Testament, who first came together in Berkeley, CA, under the moniker Legacy in 1983. Internationally, there is, of course, Brazil's iconic Sepultura, who first got it on in 1984. And there's also a big four of German thrash. I bet you didn't know that. Uh, you know I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Teutonic big four include Creator, incredible band, one of my faves, Sodom, Destruction, and everybody's favorite beer-themed thrash metal band, Tankard. Okay, so John, aside from, of course, Metallica, were you deeply familiar with any of the bands that I've mentioned today prior to listening to those big four tracks that I provided you in preparation for this episode? I mean, it's like, I uh, heard their names. You knew they existed. Yeah, didn't know any of them. I mean, Usman and I have sent you many, many Slayer-themed texts, right? You do just like to just send the word Slayer in a gift. Slayer! Like that, right? I, again, it's a it's a picture on a phone, so it doesn't really come with sound. That's the sound you should be hearing. Can you now... From now on, you yes. got it. Perfect. All the bands I named are awesome, and each is worthy of discussion. Um, today, we are just going to focus on the big four of American Thrash, and particularly on the four albums in which it can be argued that each of these bands, and Thrash in general, truly came of age. 
Alrighty then, let's begin at the beginning, which for our purposes here and now... Oh my god, we're beginning <laughs> now. Beginning. This is the beginning? <laughs> We've been doing this for like an hour and a half, and now we're beginning? This is why I say you don't do good with the condensation. <laughs> well, we're, we're beginning this next segment as we talk about these albums and bands, specifically in the fall of 1984. Alright, picture it. New York City's Roseland Ballroom. The smell of sweat and Aquanet permeate the air. The place is absolutely packed with 3,000 screaming Metallica fans, as well as an A&R guy and a couple of executives from Elektra Records. Little did an unsuspecting world know, but Thrash was about to cross over into the mainstream. Okay, long story short, I don't believe you. <laughs> No, no, not at all. But still, Metallica's sophomore album, Ride the Lightning, was originally released on July 27th of 1984 on Johnny Z's small, scrappy Megaforce label. But Metallica would soon be signed to the infinitely larger, more powerful Elektra in September of that same year. Ride the Lightning was then re-released, now with the backing of a major label, on November 19th. With Electra's support, the album managed to chart in the U.S., peaking at number 100 on the Billboard Top 200. It also managed to sell over 85,000 copies that year in Europe, and to earn Metallica the cover of the prestigious Kerrang! magazine in December of 84. Metallica and Thrash more broadly were truly off and running. Okay, I've got just a couple more bullet points on Metallica milestones in order to transition us from 1984 to where we need to be, which is 1986. Now, I may regret this, but I'd like you, John, to read the following info into the record. On November 23rd of 1984, a single for Creeping Death from Ride the Lightning was released by their European distributor, Music for Nations, and included two B-sides, covers of Am I Evil Yes, by I am! by Diamond Head and Blitzkrieg by the Nawabam band of the same name. As an import, this single managed to sell over 40,000 copies in the US. Metallica spent the final months of 1984 touring Europe and spent the entirety of the year 1985 touring across first North America, then Europe again, then the US, primarily as part of a co-headlining bill with Wasp. On August 17, 1985, Metallica played to their biggest audience to date as part of the Monsters of Rock at Donington Park in the UK. They were listed fifth on a bill that also included Rat, Bon Jovi, and headliner ZZ Top playing in front of an audience of approximately 80,000 people. On August 31st, they performed at the Day on the Green Festival in Oakland, California, listed fourth on a bill that also included, among others, the Scorpions, Rat, and local favorites YNT. Metallica's performance in front of 60,000 screaming hometown fans is often viewed as one of their early breakout moments. So, the point of all this is not to continue simply to celebrate the achievements of Metallica before they got all sucky, but rather because the ascension of Metallica, particularly come 1986, is really the story of the ascension of the entire thrash metal subgenre. Suddenly, the flag bearers for this rude, intensely visceral music were getting major label support and performing stadium shows. Now, I'm told that a rising tide lifts all boats, and that would certainly prove to be the case here. The basic gist is that by the end of 1985, when Metallica at last wrapped up its tour on December 31st in San Francisco, headlining a concert that also included Exodus, Metal Church, and last-minute Anthrax replacements Megadeth, <laughs> Thrash was officially a thing for reals. Now, John, what do you know about an album called Master of Puppets? I have listened to that entire album. Now, that's fucking crazy. I, I, I might be wrong about this. I'm pretty sure that aside from ACDC, this is the first time we've discussed an album that you listen to by choice. I think that's probably true. Yeah. To me, this is a, this is a miracle. Uh, it makes me feel like a proud papa. All right, anyway. <laughs> so, what, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, there, there are some truly iconic tracks on that album. Okay. So you now, really in, like... In my defense, it has been several months. Right, and I wasn't going to push you to listen to, to it that. again because I thought that was like a real... It was a real moment, and I didn't want to step on it. Was it your least favorite of the three? Was it... Um, I would say the great songs on this album were better than any of the songs from the other first two, but mm -hmm. like as an album as a whole, it was not as enjoyable to me as Kill 'Em All. Okay. 
I'm of the opinion that a good faith argument could be made that Master of Puppets is, if nothing else, the most historically significant album in the history of thrash, and certainly near the tippy top of that pile when it comes to the entire history of heavy metal. The Library of Congress apparently agrees with this, as in 2015, it became the first heavy metal album to be preserved in the National Recording Registry. So, I think at this point we've set the thrash metal table reasonably well, and I don't want to spend much more time on Metallica, but I do think we need a few fast facts about Master of Puppets, maybe a nice listening break so that John can use the potty if he needs to make. So Metallica chose, once again, to record in lovely Denmark and, in further deja vu type news, again worked at Sweet Silence Studios in Copenhagen with producer Fleming Rasmussen. Clearly and perfectly logically, they were very happy with how things had worked out on Ride the Lightning, and they just chose to replicate most of those conditions. In fact, they also chose to pretty closely adhere to the overall formatting of that album. Both albums begin with acoustic guitar and then move on to shredding fast thrash openers. Fight Fire with Fire versus Battery, before moving on to complex epic title tracks. Each album has an H.P. Lovecraft-inspired tune, you might recall if Cliff Burton was a fan, Call of Cthulhu versus The Thing That Should Not Be, and each album has a fourth track ballad, Fade to Black versus Welcome Home Sanitarium. Each album also has a song that tackles the horrors of war, for whom the bell tolls versus disposable heroes, and each album either ends or very nearly ends with a lengthy instrumental, Call of Cthulhu versus Orion. There is, to say the least, a lot of familial resemblance between these two albums. So head to head, if you had to choose between Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets, where are you going to land? Master of Puppets. Mm. Very, very wise. I, now, I've actually switched allegiances over the course of my life. In my nearly infinite wisdom, and would you say that's fair that I possess nearly infinite wisdom? I'm going to refrain from commenting. Okay, fair enough. As an adult heavy metal scholar, I now believe that Master is the stronger of these two truly exceptional albums. They're both great. When I was younger, uh, Red Lightning was my preference. But now, I'm all, I'm all Master all the time. Uh, a few other facts, not all of which are terribly fun. Master of Puppets was released on March 3rd of 1986. Metallica released just one single from this album, the amazing but rather unwieldy 8 minute and 35 second title track. Pretty crazy as a single, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I have comments and thoughts about that. Do you want to you comment on that? It's too fucking long. That song's too long. <laughs> this is they where the, you're editing comments. did not need all of that shit in that song. Parts of it are fucking awesome. Not yeah. eight and a half minutes of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with you on this and say that Master of Puppets is a fucking amazing song, but it doesn't have to be eight minutes and 30 plus no, seconds. It would be fine if it was five and a half minutes. Probably. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm willing for it to be a long, it doesn't have to be a three and a half minute pop song. The material is incredible, and so the bloat is forgivable, but it's still bloat. And that's okay. It's okay. There's a lot of great artists. It doesn't who make do it that. bad. Yes. Again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Master of Puppets as a song is a complete bit of trash because it's too long. Mm -hmm. That is not my stance. It could it be shorter. Just, it just could be shorter. I don't disagree. We're on the same page. This is weird. Yeah. I feel weird. Yeah. Ew. So good, good, good. I'm glad you got to speak your piece on that. So Metallica, as of Master of Puppets, still no music videos. Metallica promoted the album primarily just through touring, beginning in the US as the opening act for one Ozzy Osbourne. This is also the final album with the classic lineup of James Hetfield, voice and rhythm guitar, Kirk Hammett, lead guitar, Cliff Burton, bass, and Lars Ulrich, drums. Just why that was the case is a story we're going to need to tell. So John, I'm going to let you handle the sad stuff so I can just sit here and quietly weep. Oh, great. Yeah, tell us a story. Metallica began a European leg of their tour supporting Master of Puppets in September of 1986. Now as headliners with... Anthrax opening for them. Unfortunately, this tour was to be cut short by darkest tragedy. They were in Stockholm, Sweden on the night of Friday, September 26, 1986, where they had played a gig at the 2,000-seat Solnaholland Indoor Arena. The band had a performance the next evening in Copenhagen and were traveling by bus overnight, approximately a seven and a half hour drive to get to Denmark for the next show. 
Fatefully, Kirk Hammett and Cliff Burton decided to blindly pick playing cards from a deck to see who would get their first choice of bunks for the drive. Burton won, drawing the Ace of Spades, and he made his choice. Hours later, shortly before seven in the morning, the driver lost control of the bus, either due to black ice or negligence, depending on who you ask, and the bus careened off the road, flipping onto its side. While the three other band members emerged relatively unscathed, Burton was thrown out of the window and the bus landed on top of him. 24-year-old Cliff Burton died at the scene, forever changing the lives and career trajectory of Metallica who would never again be quite the same band. The remainder of the European tour was, of course, canceled. And though they'd contemplated throwing in the towel, Metallica would, with the support of Burton's family, choose to continue. They hired flotsam and jetsam bassist and Metallica superfan Jason Newstead, whose first performance with the band was in Reseda, California, on November 8th, 1986. But that is a story for another time. Okay, last licks on Metallica and Master of Puppets. How was this bad boy received, you ask? I know you. you That's were what curious. I was wondering. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Master of Puppets made it all the way to number 29 on the U.S. Billboard charts, which is a truly extraordinary feat when one considers how heavy this music was for its time, and also that the band was getting vanishingly little radio play and, as we mentioned, had no MTV videos. Despite all this, the album was certified gold, selling over 500,000 copies in its first year of release, and it has since gone six times platinum in both the U.S. and in Canada. All right, let's have us some assigned listening so we can sit back and reflect on all of this and also remember just how fucking awesome Metallica really were back in 1986. For my money, Battery is one of the greatest opening tracks in heavy metal history, and it really shows off the band at their fastest and most furious. And we here at HM101 like us fast and furious tunes. So pause the podcast, click the link in the show notes, and please begin banging your head in the most maniacal manner possible. Go! John. Eric. It's a great fucking song, isn't it? It is certainly Fast and Furious. Do you like Battery? It's okay. I guess I don't see Battery being a you song. Yeah, not really. I mean, I thought about doing Master of Puppets, but who the fuck hasn't heard Master of Puppets at even, this point? Even I have heard Master yeah, of Puppets. Yeah, I mean, so I thought Battery was the better to choice. Be, to be clear, if you're listening to this show mm-hmm. and you somehow haven't heard Master of Puppets, a mm-hmm. song that even I've heard, mm-hmm. you should probably go listen to it. It's a problem. I agree. I agree. For the sake of all that is unholy, can we please fucking move on from Metallica now? It is your show, you literally write these scripts, and you control the pacing. Thank you! Onwards! Okay, so there are those who might point to Metallica as the band that more or less gave birth to the entire American thrash movement. I think that's quite an oversimplification. However, there was most certainly an incredibly important American thrash band who Metallica was indeed directly responsible for creating. John, you know this. What is the band that emerged with hate a-burning in its fiery black heart from the warm bosom of Big Daddy Metallica? That's gonna be Megadeth? Megadeth! We get to talk about Megadeth. Praise Lucifer! I fucking love me some Megadeth. Now that's Mega D-E-T-H, for those not in the know. Okay, so John, whatever can you tell us about these strapping young lads? I don't remember. Well, maybe maybe this will jog your memory. On the morning of April 11th, 1983, then-lead guitarist Dave Mustaine was fired by a Metallica who were just about to record their world-changing debut. So they tra- traveled all the way from San Francisco to New York, played a few gigs, got Dave all, uh, caught him all hungover, right, and fired him. Right, this is the guy who was, yeah. And they yeah, threw yeah, him on a yeah, bus. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. We talked about this in the last episode. We did. Wait, so this is ringing bells. Yeah. Okay, great. I, I will also remind you that a number of the songs on Metallica's debut, and actually on Ride the Lightning, were composed by Mr. Mm-hmm. Mustaine. Okay, mm-hmm. good, mm-hmm. good. Uh, so we now join Dave on a long bus trip back from New York City to California. Legend has it that, one, Mustaine swore that he was going to get revenge on those Metallica fuckwads by forming an even better, faster, and heavier band of his own, and two, that somewhere around this time he stumbled upon a political pamphlet which included the phrase, quote, The arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid no matter what the peace trees come to. Mustaine pretty much immediately began putting together the band that would become Megadeth. 
There were many members in and out of the early lineups, but the most significant was bassist Dave Ellickson, who would be Mustaine's primary collaborator from 1983 until 2002, and then again from 2010 to 2021, when he was fired for one of those sexual misconduct-type scandals. Alright, so by the end of 1984, the lineup for both the 1985 debut, The Excellent Killing Is My Business, and Business Is Good, and its truly magnificent follow-up, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying, was assembled. Megadeth was... Dave Mustaine, guitars and lead vocals, David Elfson, bass and backing vocals, Chris Poland, guitars, and Gar, a nickname for Gary, Samuelson, drums. Also worth noting, this lineup did a lot of fucking drugs. Famously, they were given an $8,000 budget by Combat Records to record their debut, and pretty much immediately proceeded to spend half of that money on drugs and alcohol. It really was a lot of drugs, so the legend has it that for a number of years, Mustaine alone was spending $500 a day Jesus. on cocaine and heroin. Yeah. A, a day? A day. Holy <laughs> shit. That's a pretty good drug budget. So, with a limited budget and most of that money going directly up their noses, the production on Killing Is My Business ended up pretty shaky. But it really is a fantastic album, and it's actually my favorite debut of any of the big four by a pretty good margin. Uh, it didn't manage to chart on the Billboard Top 200, but was still a pretty major seller by the standards of teeny tiny combat records. And it did well enough to get the band signed to a major label, Capitol Records, by the end of 1985. Which brings us to Megadeth's second album and first legitimate masterpiece, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? John Boy. You mind if I call you John Boy? I do. Hmm. All right, anyhow, was the material I put onto your playlist your first time hearing Megadeth? As far as I know, yes. Oh, my God. Well, Megadeth were mine own very first thrash metal love. I included a few pretty little ditties on your playlist. Uh, this included the quasi-instrumental opener, Wake Up Dead, and the stone-fucking-classic title track, with arguably the best bass line in heavy metal history. So, unsurprisingly to me, you loved the bass line to Peace Cells, right? So, yeah, it's great. Oh, it's incredible it's bass line. Yeah, yeah. So Dave Mustaine wrote the bass line. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't so into the rest of the tune? So, both of the songs you gave me to listen to have a very distinctly different sound from mm -hmm. Metallica while yeah. still being in this genre. Okay. And I'm Sorry. not here to say that it's bad. It's just it reaches a level of aggression that goes past what I find enjoyable to listen to. Ah. I mean, Dave Mustaine was pretty pissed off at this time. And Valid. like it's, it's pretty angry music. But okay. okay. I mean, they're very virtuosic. Like they're yes. all incredible yeah. players. There's a, I would say better quite a bit better as players than Metallica. And there's some interesting little musical twists and turns mm -hmm. in the pieces. It's just not, uh, not calling it bad, just not my cup. Okay, so you didn't hate it, it just wasn't your thing. Yeah. Okay, I'll buy that. Alright, so Peace Cells is my second favorite album of the four under discussion today, but I love it so much. It is like one of my favorite albums of all time. Every song I think absolutely kills, including the surprising, wacky, thrash cover of the Willie Dixon-penned Howlin' Wolf classic, I Ain't Superstitious. They had, at least on these first two albums, a penchant for sort of fun covers, so they did that on this. They did These Boots Are Made For Walkin' on oh. uh, the first album, which I love, which apparently a lot of Megadeth fans, like, hate, but I think it's, I think it's super fun. Uh, you know, just gonna fully stereotype an entire genre of people here, but mm -hmm. they don't strike me as the type of people who would like fun. Ah, that's probably fair. That's probably fair. Okay. You have a certain level of whimsy to yes. you that would appreciate that kind of a cover. Okay, I think that's fair. So, the, the first four Megadeth albums are all great. They're... Some of the best albums I think ever released. I think Peace House is probably the second best after the uber tech thrash masterpiece that we will eventually discuss, 1990's Rust in Peace. But Peace House is both amazing music and it has a wildly iconic cover that I think is well worth a look. So it's time for everyone's favorite segment, John Looks at Shit on a Podcast. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> Here we go. All right, John. Look at the shit. What do you think? All right. So, uh, what am I seeing? Is yeah. that the UN? That's the UN. Good okay. eye. Good eye. Yeah, so, it's the UN. So it looks like, but it looks like kind of a bombed out yeah, UN. Yeah, good. Like You're, it's been destroyed. See, this is good art. You can see there's like wreckage yeah, and the windows yeah, blown yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, at the top of the band's name, uh, there's three fighter jets swooping down from kind of the top left. Yeah, like... approaching us a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then we have a 
character mm-hmm. that I, I guess is a skeleton. Yeah, is he's, it full skeleton. Yeah, he's a skeleton, but he's got like a he's got like sort of a chain goggly eyepiece thing on, yeah. and like a kind of something in his face too. Like. Yeah, curious. Uh, in a business suit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on a for sale sign. Uh huh. Peace sells, John. But who's buying? Hmm. It's a great cover, right? Yeah. I mean, it got that post-apocalyptic look with, like, the sky looks like it's all burned down. It is very, I mean, it's location, title, it's very political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's good. It's not pure fantasy stuff. It's, yeah, it's the UN and war and, you know, sort of fear of nuclear holocaust all implicit. So, yeah, you caught it. You got all the good stuff. The, the, the skeletal figure is Megadeth's iconic mascot, Vic Rattlehead. Bold to give him a last name. Yeah, I think so, too. I think yeah. Vic would have been just better. I, I, I'm not going to argue that point. I'm, I'm okay with it. The artwork is by Ed Repka, who is known as the King of Thrash Metal Art. So, I mean, I think it's it's a beautiful piece. I I love it. We will most certainly return to Megadeth in future podcast episodes, and we've still got two more iconic bands and albums to discuss. So we don't have much more time to snort blow with Dave and the guys, but I do want to go through just a few fast facts about the album before we move things along. Megadeth recorded these 36 minutes of thrash perfection in sunny Los Angeles between February and March of 1986, and Peace Sells But Who's Buying was unleashed on September 19, 1986, just six months after Metallica had dropped Master of Puppets. What a time to be alive! The album was produced by Dave Mustaine and Randy Burns, a fellow who incidentally produced or engineered a whole bunch of iconic extreme music, including debut albums by Suicidal Tendencies, oh, it's a great band, Possessed, and, most importantly of all, Death! John, it's a Death cameo! Great. Scream Bloody Gore! All right, so all music and lyrics on this album are credited to Mr. David Scott Mustaine, who is a one-man thrash metal machine surrounded by an extraordinary, if utterly drug-addled, band. Peace Cells made it to number 76 on the Billboard charts, not as high as, not as, high as Metallica, which is kind of their, their cross to bear, but this is pretty respectable for like extreme yeah. you know, music that was essentially extreme metal in 1986. Um, delightful videos, Megadeth did do videos, for the two singles, Wake Up Dead and the title track, got a goodly amount of play on MTV. I certainly saw the title track all the time and Wake Up Dead periodically. Uh, and they helped pr- promote the band and the album as did opening slots touring with first Motorhead and later the great Alice Cooper, who had officially rejoined the heavy metal fray with his own fantastic 1986 album, Constrictor. We're not going to take an official assigned listening break. We're going to kind of play with the format a little bit. But for anyone who hasn't seen it, I am going to include a link to the video for the title track in the show notes. You should check it out. It's lots of fun. I'll force John to do that at some point. John, I could talk Megadeth till the cows come home, but I think we must needs be moving on. Any last thoughts on Dave Mustaine and pals or on this incredible goddamn album? I'm sure we'll be back, so no. Great. Uh, Speaking of cows, it's time to talk about anthrax. (laughs) See what I did there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose the first thing to note about Anthrax, as we previously noted, is that they are the only band from the Big Four from the East Coast. Uh, As mentioned in the opening montage, Anthrax were formed in Queens! Though originally formed by Scott Ian and future nuclear assault founder Dan Lilker, the classic Anthrax lineup, which wasn't fully assembled until the release of their second album, 1985's Spreading the Disease, consisted of Joey Belladonna, vocals, Dan Spitz, guitar and backing vocals, Scott Ian, guitar and backing vocals, Frank Bello, bass and backing vocals, and Charlie Benante, drums. Of course, today, we're talking about what is probably their masterpiece, I I would say so. That's 1987's Among the Living. John, what did you think of Anthrax and of the tunes I put onto your preparatory playlist? I know you have thoughts. Yeah, I didn't care for these. So you didn't like Caught in a Mosh. That's such a catchy fucking song. And they're both really catchy. So I put, to be clear, I put Caught in a Mosh and Indians mm-hmm. on your on your playlist. You don't like either of those? Not particularly, though. Indians did make me wonder what the fascination was with talking about. About, about native peoples yeah. that we probably wouldn't refer to as Indians unless that was the name of the song. So singer Joey Belladonna is actually half Native American. Okay. His mother's Native American. So he actually has, there's like a long-standing thing. He actually, in 
probably wouldn't do that in this day and age, but he used to wear like headdresses on stage and stuff like that. But again, he comes from native native ancestry. Now, importantly, I also cheated a little bit on your playlist in order to convey a contemporary moment of great significance. Mm. Uh, you see, the goofy but revolutionary I'm the Man was actually recorded during the Among the Living sessions, and although it wasn't included on the album proper, it was eventually released as a B-side to the 12-inch version of the first single, I Am the Law, and then more officially released in December of 1987 as the title track of Anthrax's second EP. It's really basically just a novelty song parodying the Beastie Boys, mm-hmm. but, but along with Aerosmith and Run DMC's collaboration on Walk This Way, which was one year earlier, I'm the Man was one of the crucial forerunners for the subgenre rap metal that was to come. So, John, are you a rap metal cat? No. <laughs> I, you know, rap metal is generally, it's a, it's, it's a little iffy as a genre. There's few masterpieces. That, that, I mean, so that song that we're talking about, uh, I'm the Man, to me, it was more entertaining as parody than uh-huh. as actual genre like, defining music. I think that's fair, and I think that was its intent. But it does, you know, it does synthesize. It's a pretty good parody. Of the yeah, Beastie I mean, it synthesizes like really a really good parody of the Beastie Boys with on its like bridge and chorus like actual like heavy guitars and stuff like that. So it's you know it, it was important. It was totally it wasn't intended as important, which is probably probably why it works. Mm. It's more just silly and stupid and fun, but. Hey, it works. It works. And it does begin to establish something huge that's going to come, uh, including from Anthrax, who were eventually going to collaborate with Public Enemy and tour with Public Enemy mm-hmm. and do a great, great uh, version of Bring the Noise by Public Enemy. I don't, okay. Do you know Public Enemy? I do. Yeah, great group. And so like, that's when it starts getting really serious, this okay. whole rap metal collaboration. So Anthrax are silly, and they do rap you know, at least on this one song, but they're also fucking great players. Like, they totally shred. They're very precise. They're very thrashy, very competent. And they actually have a singer who can sing. I sort of thought you would like the fact that Joey Belladonna actually has, like, a nice voice. Yeah. But Joey Belladonna was not a thrash metal singer. He actually had no familiarity with thrash, so they always had to kind of, like, teach him the ropes. And he's just, like, a guy with, like, a really nice high voice. Hmm. So I thought you might appreciate that, but it didn't... You're not an anthrax guy? Nah. Meh. Yeah, there's just there's a certain level of aggression to all this music that I don't particularly. Yeah, I mean, although they're silly, Anthrax are definitely fast and heavy and yeah. thrashy and all that. Yeah, they're fun. It's not my calling. Okay. So we've got an extraordinarily grand finale to get to, and I don't want to dig too much deeper into Anthrax, but we've got to talk a wee spot about Among the Living, which was the latecomer amongst all of these big fourth masterpieces, which were otherwise released in 1986. Now, Anthrax recorded this album in late 1986, snowbirding it by spending October through December of that year recording and mixing first in sunny Miami and later in beautiful Nassau, Bahamas. Mm. Now, John, is it possible for us to shoot on down to Nassau at some point and record a few of our HM 101 episodes? Maybe at like a beachside cabana? I think we should very much look into that possibility. Among the Living was Anthrax's third album and was released on March 16th of 1987 via Tiny Scrappy Megaforce in collaboration with the major label Island Records. Aside from the scenic recording and mixing locations that the label okayed, a further illustration that Anthrax had truly made it by this time was that this album was produced by the rather legendary Eddie Kramer, who amongst many other classics had produced Kiss Alive back in 1975. Among the Living made it to number 62 on the US charts and all the way to number 18 on the UK charts and was certified gold in the US and silver in the UK. Also, I'll remind you that Anthrax had been the band that was touring with Metallica in Europe when Cliff Burton was killed, and so this album was dedicated to his memory. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, just sweet. Uh, John, are you ready to join me at the local tattoo parlor so that you and I can get matching Anthrax tattoos celebrating our love for this most excellent band? Absolutely not. Okay, I'll let you think on it. Meanwhile, I think it's about time we stop pussyfooting around. John, are you ready? Yeah. I don't think you're ready. I'm not? I don't think so. Oh. Yeah. What do we need to do? I think you need to gird your loins. Are your loins girded? Sure. Okay, great. Because it's time, John. It's time to talk about Slayer! So, John Boy, we settled on that, right? No, that's like a that's thing. That's not a thing. All right. Well, anyway, what thoughts and feelings do you have regarding arguably the coolest fucking metal band of all time, The Mighty Slayer? Wow, the coolest? I think they're the coolest. Well, you're going to have to sell me on that. Okay. Let's dive in. Okay. Slayer. Cool. Evil. Fast. Scary. 
heavy. Uncompromising. What a great list of words. Yeah. You like it? Sure. You sold? On? I don't remember. What were we talking about? Slayer. Slayer. Yes! <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> this is all really coming together. We're going to spend the rest of our precious short time together bathing in the unhallowed blood of Slayer. Oh, God. I hear it's good for the skin. Yeah, yeah. Um, as alluded to in our opening montage, Slayer first came together in Huntington Park, CA, in 1981. Now, I've got a not-so-fun fact about Huntington Park. <laughs> we love a not-fun <laughs> fact. I hope this is something like uh, just statistics. It's, it is totally statistics. Amazing. <laughs> it is? All right, so, statistically speaking, <laughs> as of 2019, Huntington Park was ranked at the very bottom of the entire state of California in a statistical compilation known as the Misery Index. Wow. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, this is also the name of a uh, very solid 21st century death metal band, Misery yeah, Index. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a pretty good name. Regardless, I, for one, can't imagine a more congenial place for a band like Slayer to emerge than quite literally the most miserable place in the entire state of California. Where is Huntington Park? <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of like a suburb of L.A. Okay, so we're going to let the late, great Jeff Hanneman rest in power, tell the story of Slayer's earliest days. Now, John, I don't have any audio for the following quote. Oh, no. So you get Me? the rare privilege of portraying Jeff Hanneman. All right, don't fuck this up. I'll do my best. Carrie and I met. I was hanging with some friends who played, I don't know what kind of music it was, bluesy kind of music. And Carrie, for some reason, was trying out for that band. Me and Carrie got to talking, and he and I picked up a guitar, and we started playing after the tryout session was over. We were playing priest and maiden songs with a drummer, and so Carrie and I started talking, and Carrie was like, why don't we start our own band? <laughs> I was like, fuck yeah! <laughs> Eventually, Dave lived down the street from Carrie and approached Carrie because he heard that he had guitars, and the next thing you know, Dave was in the band. But then Carrie said he'd played in another band with this singer named Tom, and soon he was in the band. Slayer! Well done, buddy. I felt like Jeff was here in the room with us. Okay, so the classic Slayer lineup, as just explained by John embodying Jeff Hanneman, was Tomas Enrique Orea Diaz, who was born in Viña del Mar, Chile in 1961, but who grew up in Los Angeles. Carrie Ray King, who was born in Los Angeles in 1964. David Lombardo, who was born in Havana, Cuba in 1965, though his family relocated to Southgate, California when he was just two years old. And, of course, Jeffrey John Hanneman, who was born on January 31st, 1964 in Long Beach, CA, and sadly passed following an insanely fucking rough couple of years, which began with him contracting flesh-eating disease as the result of a spider bite in 2011, yeah, and ended with his death from liver failure on May 2nd, 2013. Yikes. Ugh, yeah, bad times. Slayer are generally viewed as the heaviest and also, from the perspective of 2023, the least compromised of the big four. Other than a very brief flirtation with new metal in the late 1990s, unlike the other three bands we've discussed, Slayer never attempted to leave thrash behind. They were also by far the darkest of the big four, and much of their music, praise all that is evil and impure, is about the occult, serial killers, and the devil. These are a few of my favorite things. So, like Metallica, who you may recall also got their start in Los Angeles, prior to eventually relocating to the Bay Area, Slayer's early rise was directly connected to one Brian Slagle. Brian Slagle put out a series of historically important compilation albums called Metal Massacre. Remember those? Uh-huh. You've talked about them today? Yep. Yeah. I'll remind you that Metallica's Hit the Lights was the final track on the first Metal Massacre. Uh, Slayer's track, Aggressive Perfector, was the opening track on Metal Massacre number three. And it generated enough enthusiasm that Brian Slagle went on to sign Slayer to a recording contract with Metal Blade. I could totally do a podcast called Slayer 101 with great enthusiasm, but really the goal here is to get us to 1986. So let's again go into montage mode and power our way through early Slayer history. Okay, so John, gargle some salt water, do a few vocal warm-ups, and please take us through a brief kaleidoscopic tour of early Slayer career highlights. 
Though signed to Metal Blade for the distribution of their first album, the still very new label was unable to provide the band with a recording budget, and so Slayer were forced to self-fund the recording of their debut, Show No Mercy, which was released in December of 1983 went on to sell over 40,000 copies, becoming Metal Blade's best-selling release of that period. In February of 1984, guitarist Kerry King briefly joined Dave Mustaine's new project, a little band called Megadeth. King's tenure lasted just five shows, and soon he was fully back in the warm, maleficent bosom of Slayer. In June of 1984, Slayer released their first EP, Haunting the Chapel. It was just three tracks long, but proved a decisive musical step forward in the development of Slayer's ultra-intense signature thrash metal sound. For their second full-length album, Hell Awaits, Metal Blade now had the incentive and the budget to finance the recording sessions. What emerged was Slayer's surprisingly progressive first masterpiece, a magnum opus with one foot in the sophisticated evil musical language of Merciful Fate, and the other in a raw, extreme metal of Venom. On Hellweights, Slayer became... SLAYER! Good work, Juan! At this point, we've just one final bit of Slayer history to attend to prior to the release of Rain and Blood. Enter Rick Rubin! And John, you're a reasonably musical dude. Sure. What do you know about a fellow named Rick Rubin? It's not ringing any bells. Oh, he's very famous. Well, for our purposes today, the important things to know about Air Rubin are he co-founded Def Jam Recordings. Oh, oh, wait, 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 oh, wait, oh, wait. Oh, oh, you were just... Is this the guy with the beard? Long huge beard. beard? Oh my god, I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I find him so annoying. Yeah, he's pretty insufferable. I find him just... I, I actually... So I listened to a very long interview with him a few uh, days ago, and I just... Like, maybe it's savant-level genius that my stupidity just can't possibly comprehend, but the way he speaks just makes me want to punch walls. I get Music that. he's produced, some great fucking Some music. amazing music. Some, some yes. truly... Okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm okay. there now. Okay, good. So he co-founded Jeff Jam Recordings, which is an early hip-hop label which helped introduce the world to, among others... LL Cool J, The Beastie Boys, and Public Enemy, and that he is a super producer who has won eight Grammys and has basically worked with all of the cool people at one point or another. Ruben, who was just 22 at the time, was as much a rock fan as a hip-hop fan and had been absolutely blown away after catching Slayer live in NYC in September of 1985. And he signed the band to Def Jam and produced their follow-up to Hello Waits, which was to be arguably the greatest thrash metal album of all time. John, dim the lights. Turn on the smoke machine. You want it darker? It couldn't possibly be darker. You could close the blinds. <laughs> That's true. You could do that. Maybe put a veil over my face. <laughs> it's time for... Raiding I want to let Slayer speak for themselves. Let's get right into this with quite possibly the greatest opening track in heavy metal history, Angel of Death. Everybody, pause the podcast, click on the link in the show notes, and do be sure to shriek along with Tom Araya. Oh, Juan Carlo, Jean-Baptiste, my beloved bosom buddy, John Boy. We made it! The Tenth Circle of Hell, Hail Satan! This is the music that frightens and horrifies the masses. Slayer! John, how was your Angel of Death listening experience? I mean, this is not music I'm going to enjoy. You, I you know that about it. I you. mean, I wasn't expecting yeah. you to. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like yeah, it? Yeah, I'm not here to say it's bad. I'm just saying, like, this is never going to speak to me. It's very heavy, right? It is very heavy. Yeah, yeah. It's like heavy metal. I, I think that is a fair statement. Yeah, okay. Well, I imagine that it will surprise absolutely no one when I confirm that this is indeed my own personal favorite of the four seminal thrash albums under discussion today, and quite possibly my favorite thrash album of all time. I truly love Rain and Blood, which is a lean, mean 28 minutes and 55 seconds of absolute perfection. Now that's respectable. Uh, you gotta love that, I right? do respect Yeah, that. I like that too. There's not a single wasted note on this album. It just doesn't get any better than this. Now, all right, so uh, obviously Angel of Death is a lot. What do you think about the other two classic tunes I included on your playlist? The wonderfully sinister, criminally insane, and my favorite song of all the songs, album closer, Raining Blood. They do a minute of something cool, first minute, mm -hmm. cool, and then they just start doing the loud 
repetitive thing you for the next thrashing three wildly, sure. making that's, everyone happy. That's what it is. Maniacal joy. Is that, is this, does this bring you joy? Oh my god, I, I have a so headache. Much. We listened to maybe total two minutes. I have a headache. It's because you were headbanging so hard. No. <laughs> Do you not think that maybe that you don't have enough of an understanding of the genre orally to hear the distinctions from one song to the next? That, that is entirely possible, okay. but you asked me my opinion. Okay. All right. Well, the music and lyrics for all of the songs on Rain and Blood were written either individually or in collaboration between guitarists Hanneman and King. But the music for both of the monumental bookends, Angel of Death and Raining Blood, that was written by the dearly departed Hanneman, who was always Slayer's slightly under-the-radar MVP. Now, John, I know that you still need to build up your post-break stamina in order to better endure these mammoth recording sessions. I can tell because you're becoming musically stupid. So I'll begin to wind things down by dropping just a wee bit of rain and blood knowledge. Is that okay? Sure. Good. Good. Uh, now, first off, this was an album which was causing problems even before it got released. Def Jam had a distribution deal with Columbia, but due to the controversial subject matter of Angel of Death, which is about Nazi doctor and world-class fuckwad Joseph Mengele, Columbia refused to distribute Rain and Blood, which eventually ended up being distributed by Geffen instead. Rain and Blood was, at last, released on October 7th, 1986, a day which will live in heavy metal fummy. Is fummy a thing? You don't seem sold. I just feel like maybe you shouldn't have written that. Wow. <laughs> Woo! Now we're getting personal. <laughs> anyway, it was a good day for heavy metal. It's worth noting that Rain and Blood's abbreviated runtime was a happy accident. The band only realized it towards the end of the mixing process. Ruben and the band discussed it, and they agreed that they had said all that needed to be said, and the duration was left at just under 29 minutes. Now, I happen to have Rain and Blood on CD, but another fun fact is that the album actually fit onto just one side of a cassette tape, mm -hmm. and so you'd flip it over and the entire thing would just repeat on the second side. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's cool. Now just one more fun fact. This is maybe my favorite, and this might say something about something as far as John's reaction. The average BPM, that's beats per minute to you and me, across Rain and Blood's 10 tracks is a rather robust 220. Yeah, that tracks. Uh, to my mind, this is the good stuff. Probably unsurprisingly, Rain and Blood got basically no radio play at all, and it produced no music videos for MTV, yet it still managed to reach number 94 on the Billboard charts and, by 1992, was certified gold in the U.S. of A. Are you bludgeoned into a death-like silence, or do you have any thoughts or feelings about all of this glorious evil which you might like to share with the class? I'm just really concerned we're going to have to talk about this band more. We're going to literally devote about 95% of the remaining existence of this podcast to Slayer. Hmm. Just kidding. But yes, Slayer will indeed come back. You'll be pleased to note, however, that the follow-up to Rain and Blood is actually much slower. Like, it's much more doomy. Very, they took a very different tact after mm. that. Yeah, you'll like it. You'll love it, even. I'm excited. We'll see. Yeah. Look, I think we've done the thing. I also think we're back, and perhaps even better than ever. What do you think? We're certainly back. <laughs> yes, we are. This is going to be a great fucking season. Can you feel that? Can you feel the energy? Uh, you know, you've told me things about what's coming down the road, and I... <laughs> You're excited. We will see what happens. Yeah, we're going to see some things. So, I assume that our listeners are absolutely spilling over with their very own thoughts and feelings about the Big Four, Thrash Metal, and or the glorious return of Heavy Metal 101. John, in the spirit of all this, can you remind our beloved audience how they might go about contacting us? Of course, if you want to write us an email, you can at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Still waiting for that first voicemail? You're going to love where they can send their voicemails now. Holy shit. Well, we're going to be waiting a little bit longer for that first voicemail because you have to decipher this. Podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash heavy metal 101 podcast to send us a voicemail. I, I assume everyone got that. That was very clear. Oh, that's not the issue. <laughs> well, where can they find us on social media? Well, of course we're on social media. You can find us on Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, and oh my god, really, we're on TikTok? I mean, we have a TikTok page, and I've posted What do one... you post? Do you post your shitty reels on TikTok? No, I do dances. Oh, you do dances? No, I, I posted a, oh, okay. my shitty reels. Okay. <laughs> Look, as we work to make this the biggest, baddest, and most satanic HM101 season to date, we would love any and all help getting the word out. So if you haven't done so yet, please do be sure to give us those five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen, and please don't hesitate to write kindly reviews, share episodes with your friends and loved ones, or to send us vast amounts of cash money. Any and all of the above would be most appreciated, and John will be sure to add you to his nightly bedtime prayer list. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah good. absolutely. Okay, John. So I think you're ready for this, actually. I thought this was going to be a big ask, but I think you can, you can do this. Could you please give us, just one more time, your own beautiful, heartfelt, closing rendition of a glorious, bellowing slayer. I think it'd make me and all your adoring fans ever so happy. Slayer!